happens when a bunch of guys starts a war? And more to the point, if those bunch of guys happen to be in the Kremlin, how can we actually have any meaningful kind of traction over them? For that, and for the very, very first time, I've got a guest on the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Listen on. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. Well, hello, and for a change of pace this time, I've actually got a guest the very first time on the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Taking advantage of the fact that she's briefly in London, I'm in conversation with Russian-American political analyst and writer Anna Arutunyan, who on the whole lives in Moscow, but is for the period 20 to 20 to 2021, is in Washington, D.C. You probably know Anna's work if you follow Russia. She was formerly political editor at the Moscow News, Then she had a stint as the senior Russia analyst for International Crisis Group. And she's particularly well known for her excellent book, The Putin Mystique, which has been translated into over a dozen different languages. And as a study of, you might say, how Putinism emerged from below rather than just simply something imposed from above is still very, very relevant. So, Anna, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Particularly what I'm interested about, you had a very recent article in Foreign Affairs that has been raising quite a bit of interest. And I think that uh, can trigger some interesting conversations here about the nature of sanctions. But do you want to tell us, first of all, what the basic thesis of that article was? Um, It's an article that's calling for the United States to accept, uh, or at least consider accepting, um, the Russian proposed non-interference pact. Um, and I know this is counterintuitive. And so tell us a, bit, a little bit about what this pact means. Uh, the Russians have been offering uh, this pact since about 2017. And uh, the interesting thing is they've been doing it for a reason. Because every time it comes up, uh, it's in the context of allegations of Russian interference. So what Moscow is essentially is, uh, doing, it's using this offer of a pact to deflect blame and responsibility and say, oh, well, the United States never wants to cooperate with us, and uh, here's a case in point. It knows full well that the U.S. will not go for it, which is just basically exactly what it wants. Um, it allows Russia to keep claiming that the U.S. Um, is uncooperative, and it allows Russia to keep claiming this um, status as a beleaguered, bullied uh, state that wants to make peace, but just the United States never wants to do it. So what I'm suggesting is break the vicious cycle, call Putin's bluff, go for a pact, but on U.S. terms. Now, Russia is highly unlikely to accept it, uh, but at least um, the excuses it keeps hiding behind will be much less convincing. That was the whole point of the of the piece. And I was kind of considering this in the wider context of uh, sanctions policy in general, and given especially the, the sense that sanctions really haven't been working, I was thinking, can we really... Th- start considering sanctions policies that are more imaginative, they're less about doing the right thing and more about actually changing Russian behavior. Okay, well, before we get on to sanctions, let's talk a little bit more about, about this notion of, of going for, for the non-interference pact. 
because your suggestion, as I recall, was that essentially America should say, absolutely, excellent idea. These are the following acts that we regard as malign intervention, to use that current buzzword. And these are the things that we think are perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. With the expectation that Russia either will say, well, actually, we're not quite so comfortable, or else is going to engage in protracted negotiations. So it's not actually, just to clarify, if I get it right, that you think that this will lead anywhere in the sense of stopping the Russians from acting the way they act. It's essentially about this global narrative conflict. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is. I have no illusions that uh, the Russians are going to say, oh, great, yeah, let's sign a pact, excellent, and then the United States has a, has a working agreement with Russia. I think more uh, in that by, by doing that, it catches the Kremlin, uh, it surprises the Kremlin. It's not something that the Kremlin would expect. And it creates a situation where, okay, if the Russians are arguing that the United States uh, declines to cooperate and never wants to um, agree agree to anything, okay, well, you've got a pact. Uh, if you're actually serious about non -inter not interfering in each other's elections, here's a pact, why don't you sign it? And if you don't sign it, then by actually not doing anything, it puts Russia on the spot and suggests, okay, well, aha, there's a reason why you're not doing this. And therefore, your constant um, denials and subterfuge is going to ring all the more hollow. Now, you could argue that, okay, what's the point of this? I mean, so, so what? I've heard a lot of this argument, but okay, what, what, what is this going to actually change? Well, not much, but uh, little by little, step by step, uh, it carves away, it, it, it uh, weakens this narrative that Russia has been hiding behind. And I think that narrative is important because in the political war that uh, Russia is finding itself uh, with the West, I think it's largely a war of narratives uh, more than anything else. There's also, interestingly, a war of imagination in many ways. It's precisely that, bringing this back to, to the point of, of sanctions, I mean, it always struck me that one of the problems is precisely that so long as we stick to our standard Western game plan of how we respond to various incidents, then the Russians know full well what to expect. They have either braced for it or they just simply regard it as kind of part of the, the price of doing business. And, and in sanctions, as in other aspects of policy, we should be putting a lot more effort into thinking precisely how can we make the Kremlin feel less comfortable with the state of affairs. Not comfortable in the sense of the overall trajectory, because they're clearly not, but comfortable in their capacity to second-guess the West. And again, I think, yes, this, this whole notion of catching, catching the Russians by surprise, that's something they don't like. They like the idea that we are the dull, stolid, predictable ones, while they are the swashbuckling, adventurous ones. That's actually a very good point, because um, I think what's been lost in, in, in the West, when, uh, when, when I talk to officials in Europe or in the United States, is this uh, uh, the misunderstanding, well, why don't sanctions work? I mean, they're putting all this pressure on Russia. Why, you know, they're, they're certainly they're having an effect uh, economically or otherwise. Well, the effect that they're having um, is precisely to vindicate a very paranoid and unhealthy narrative that has been going around in Russian circles and patriotic circles in particular 
Um, you should, I mean, mention, as it were, patriotic comes in its own little quotation marks. Oh, yes. Uh, nationalist patriotic. I mean, the, the um, I, I like to call them the, the Russian deplorables. And this narrative has been going around for decades. In the last decade, it's actually uh, become very prominent in the, in, in the Kremlin. And that is that uh, the West is at war with us. They want to destroy us. Uh, everything they do is to undermine us. Uh, and the sad thing about the sanctions regime is that over the last five years, uh, I'm actually hearing this narrative come from otherwise very pragmatic, liberal-minded, pro, otherwise pro-Western people uh, that are becoming disillusioned with uh, the relations with the West because they feel that they've been treated unfairly. So I think, and, and, and again, this is a, this is an argument that the Kremlin uses to vindicate its behavior and basically give it an excuse and a pass to do everything at once. Yeah, unintended consequences of all kinds are often really a problem with sanctions. I mean, you've talked about the, the political unintended consequences of exactly that it seems to validate this legitimating narrative of Putin's that the West hates us. And that's why, you know, even though times are hard, everyone must kind of rally around the trickle flag and so forth. And there are all other kinds of unex- uh, unwanted consequences, ranging from the extent to which, I mean, on a relatively trivial level, but there are certain aspects of the Russian economy which have benefited from mutual sanctions, even though without getting away from the fact that clearly overall it's been very detrimental to the economy. And that particularly as we get into the realm of personal sanctions, hitting individuals whom we regard as as, as bad eggs, um, what that often means is it encourages people precisely to do what Putin wanted, which is awful word, de-offshoreize. In other words, bring their money home, bring their assets and their interests back home to where, of course, Putin and his state can reach them, tap them and force them to do things. But either way, what seem to be on the surface sensible, intelligent ways of bringing pressure to bear on the Kremlin perversely often do either nothing or in some ways actually strengthen it. Exactly. I mean, I know just of two examples that come to mind, very unfortunate examples. You've got the uh, famous Magnitsky Act uh, from uh, 2012, which uh, when I investigated this issue when I was a political reporter, it actually uh, turned out that um, the result was the Russians halted the investigation uh, into the death of uh, Sergei Magnitsky because it now became geopolitical. Now, does that mean that the Magnitsky Act is wrong? No, absolutely not. Uh, did the people involved deserve these sanctions? Absolutely, yes. But again, the unintended consequence was precisely the opposite of what the Act uh, ostensibly tried to achieve. Um, another example, which I find, uh, you know, popping up a lot in my conversations with uh, diplomats who are, you know, they want to support civil rights activists, they want to support independent journalists, uh, they want to support sometimes opposition figures, but not just, you know, for politics, just to support the right kind of stuff. And I have, I find myself saying, look, I mean, uh, absolutely support them, but be aware that when, when you've got a figure that has Western support, you're actually putting that person in the spotlight of the Kremlin, potentially putting him or her in danger. And that's always something we have to consider. Um, And it's again, it goes back to the question of, uh, yeah, we do the right thing, but we have to consider the consequences. And are those consequences going to be what we want? 
And those consequences are quite often not for us. They're precisely for, for the people we want to help. I mean, again, this, this is one of the whole dilemmas about not just sanctions regime, but sanctions regime is a part of a much wider issue. We are formally absolutely opposed to any notion that we are engaged in a state change operation in, in Russia. No, no, we're no longer in, 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 that, in that kind of business or whatever. But the point is, when you have what is essentially an authoritarian kleptocracy with a little side order of civil society and democracy there as well, but nonetheless, in essence, in my opinion, it's an authoritarian kleptocracy. Therefore, of course, by definition, supporting people who are anti-corruption activists, supporting investigative journalists, supporting people who want to shine a light onto all the many, many dark and dubious corners of this system is implicitly subversive. And therefore we have to make that choice. And on one level you think, well, look, it's not a choice. We have to stand up for our values. But let's be brutally honest. We don't do that in Saudi Arabia to anything like the same degree, if at all. We don't do that in China to anything like the same degree, if at all. And so the story goes, and so fourthly, this also plays to Putin's narrative, because often one of the key things that really seems to kind of get them is this notion of hypocrisy. As you said, this notion that they're being treated unfairly. It's not just unfairly because you're not nice to authoritarian kleptocrats, it's that you give others, and in some cases, much, much more horrible regimes, something of a pass, but Russians, Russians, you hold up to a different standard. And again, I think this is, this is why, I mean, I, I, I have been banging the drum, trying to say, look, you know, we need to have different ways of thinking about sanctions. And in part, that's just going to be about different ways to actually catch the Kremlin's attention, to make them sort of sit up and think, oh, actually, you know, that the, there is a cost. But it's also about precisely what kind of message you give. The Magnitsky Act, absolutely, what happened to Magnitsky was absolutely horrifying. But one has to say, well, OK, but how much is that something that happens to a lot of other people in Russia? People who don't just happen to have a multimillionaire in the West keen to basically raise their, their issue and make that the central plank of a new sanctions regime. It's almost like, well, if you're just an ordinary Russian getting you know, beaten or denied medical care or whatever else in prison, well, that's a shame. But it's not really a big deal. So I think, you know, often we, we really have to be much, much more careful. And what is, after all, often a, a regime that is driven by that sense of we need to do something, that sense of moral outrage, understandable and, as you said, you know, perfectly justified. But nonetheless, sometimes it needs to be sort of backed with a little bit more caution. Think, OK, well, how is this going to play not just the next step, but two, three steps down the line? I mean, this is, uh, th this is precisely the thing. We often wind up doing the right thing, which is actually for us, which is actually to bolster our own moral superiority rather than to do good. This is what we have to be thinking about. Now, I know you've, you've written a lot about this, and I wanted to ask you um, what kind of specific sanctions you would propose on various issues, because um, I've seen that you, you've, you, you know, you've talked about this from the pragmatic perspective, uh, and I'd be curious to hear what, uh, what you would suggest, because I get this question a lot, sometimes I don't know what to say. Well, it's often because I don't think there is a kind of standard, oh, this is the answer. I think it often is a question of thinking, well, okay, well, how can we find a, a pressure point that 
will be suitable. And the first thing they have to do is break out of the usual sort of symmetrical thing, which is, well, if you've done something nasty that involves, say, disinformation through social media, then we have to think of sanctions that are somehow involved with media and information. Um, we, we do get too tied up in that. I think, you know, we, we must realise that essentially the Russian state is pretty holistic in how it manages its political war, so we should be pretty holistic in striking back. So, yeah, it, it could be, I mean, again, all one can really do is just throw out ideas. I mean, ones I've suggested are things like, with, the, say, the Navalny case, just putting a huge bounty, saying, OK, if anyone can actually give us evidence of what happened, and I mean evidence, not just, hey, I've got a story, then we'll give you whatever it is, 5 million euros, 10 million euros, and we'll throw in a Belgian passport while we're at it, because I suspect that would be a good move. Because what we want is the information that we can then use to target, rather than just simply picking some pretty much random figures and, and just slapping meaningless personal sanctions on them. Or maybe what we should be saying is, well, actually, um, at the moment, we feel that giving Georgia 50 million to euros to bolster its counterintelligence capabilities. That's what's really going to do the job. Or take a, you know, a leaf out of other sort of old, older Cold War type things. And think, well, you know, rather than necessarily supporting the usual suspects of BBC and Voice of America and so forth, admirable job though they do in the main, think about this whole new generation of emigre media like Medusa in, in, in Latvia and so forth, and think, well, okay, actually, we're just going to dump some money on them for their investigative work, or just simply just to make sure they have a bigger footprint. I mean, I'm just simply thinking that it's not actually that I have a sort of a magic answer. I just think we should be thinking of alternatives, and often precisely be thinking of different things, so the Russians don't know what, what the next thing's going to be. And the final point, that again is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, you know, we have this destruction NATO, but it's this extraordinary expression of solidarity against military threats. And it's, it's worked. This notion that an attack on one is an attack on, on all did keep the peace, I would suggest, through the Cold War. And to an extent now, not that I think Russia actually has any serious intentions of, of attacking anyway. There is nothing like NATO for non-kinetic attacks. I mean, yes, we have seen some individual cases. I mean, the interesting thing is, yes, there was the multinational expulsions that followed the attempt to kill Sergei Skripal in Britain, which was, um, I would say, a triumph of British diplomacy. And it was definitely something that stunned the Russians. I had no idea this was coming. But since then, we've had a murder in Berlin of a Chechen. That seems pretty clearly a, a thug working for the Russian Federal Security Service. And there's been nothing. Actually, the, the next thing that, that generated some kind of multinational activity, ironically enough, was Navalny's case. And look, without in any way saying that Navalny doesn't matter, of course he does. But this was a Russian poisoned in Russia, and somehow that, it took that to generate some kind of multinational response. We need to have multinational solidarity. We need to say that if you launch a hack, if you launch a um, particularly disrupted disinformation campaign, Whatever, if you do one of these things in not just a European country or even a NATO country, but you know, a collection of, of nations that, that feel in this way, there will be common repercussions. Until we have that solidarity, then the Russians are continue to basically needle individual countries where they think they can get away with it. But also one of the things is often about the fact that we sanction Moscow, the Kremlin, the Russian government, call it what you will, for actions that, yes, 
are generated by overall Russian policy, but it's not as though Putin signed a document authorizing them in many cases. I mean, a lot of what we face is not coming from that, that sort of direction. Well, this is actually something that you and I uh, talk about a lot, um, the extent to which the Kremlin plans ahead uh, and controls its plans and controls the implementation of its plans. Uh, now, you argue uh, you, you, you've got the ad hoc uh, concept, which is, I, I think, great. I've, sometimes I argue like to, to an even uh, greater extreme that I see it as all chaos. Um, but I'm interested in, like, how do you see, um, if it's ad hoc, um, where is the line drawn? Where, at which point does the Kremlin lose control of its plans and their implementation? Yeah, I mean, that, that's really interesting and in some ways touches on a topic that we'll be coming back to in, in, in the second part uh, of, of, of the podcast. I mean, this is from because, you know, look, everyone wants a simple answer. Everyone wants to know, you know, is Putin behind it? Or is it, are you suggesting that it's purely sort of generated from below? And the answer is, of course, it's, it's a bit of everything. There are those operations which clearly are initiated at the very top. Whether that means Putin or one of the people close to him, one of the top institutions, that's harder to say, and anyway, it doesn't really matter. I mean, something like, say, the attempt to assassinate Skripal. And for me, that's something I doubt Putin initiated, but it would have been the GRU, military intelligence. After all, Skripal had been one of theirs, who presumably sort of went to the boss and said, look, there's this guy, we feel he's out of line, we want to do something about it. And because there's no way this could not have been an international incident, yeah, absolutely, the boss had to sign off on that. Then there are other things that come to the boss's desk. Um, and for me, I think one of the good examples is the attempted coup in Montenegro, which, as I understand it, was generated by Konstantin Malafeyev. I mean, I, I can't say that for sure. That's just what I've heard. Um, before anyone reaches for their libel lawyers, I'm perfectly happy to issue a retraction on air at a future point. But as I heard it, Malafeyev, who, after all, is a you know, very nationalistic figure with you know, his own agenda, frankly, um, strong holdings in the Balkans region, not quite an oligarch, but certainly as, you know, in the upper demigarch ranks, who had this idea, but realised it was, it was above his pay grade. He could throw money into the problem, but something like this, no, he needed to get some kind of okay. He doesn't have any direct link with Putin. Again, I think people often overestimate the extent to which people can just simply wander into Putin's office and say, hey, I've got an idea, boss. He needed a patron. He shot the, his idea around Moscow, and as I understand it, the patron he found was... Nikolai Patrushev, Secretary of the Security Council, and a man who absolutely does have access to Putin. Patrushev liked the idea, he took it to Putin, he sold the boss on it, and as soon as Putin approved, then all of a sudden more state resources were unlocked, including, again, GRU, military intelligence assets. But again, it was, it was how I say, a purely private initiative that had to go into the state. Then you have things where actually the state just simply takes over something that wasn't generated by them, and for me, the classic example is the Lisa Gase case in Germany, where you have this Russian emigre girl who spends the night out with her boyfriend, doesn't want to admit to her parents what she's been doing, and constructs this story of these sort of Muslim or whatever looking migrants who abducted and raped her, becomes a core celeb, 
on social media within that community in Germany gets picked up by the media, in due course gets picked up by the Russian media, and clearly someone somewhere thinks, aha, this, this is useful, this is exactly what we need because it's divisive, it helps spread trouble in Germany, particularly on this fault-line issue of, of allowing migrants in. And so you get the state media getting involved, you get the foreign ministry, and also a particularly ill-judged decision, Foreign Minister Lavrov. And then the story falls apart. And it's actually a, a really serious misstep. But the point is, it's not as if anyone in the Kremlin was thinking, let's see if we can get some girl to claim she was raped. Quite the opposite. It was actually something that came from below, was picked up by people who weren't directly involved, but nonetheless, sort of hit, it was their kind of narrative that they liked the idea of. And the Kremlin chose to then amplify it. So that's a case of supporting from above. And then you have the things that, frankly, never really get onto the Kremlin's radar at all. But just individuals, whether it's an ambassador or a media commentator or a journalist or a business person or whatever, think they can do something that is in line with what they believe the boss, the Kremlin, wants. And maybe it works, often it doesn't, but it's just this kind of low-level entrepreneurialism. Of, of this political war. And so absolutely, of course, in this situation, often things are going to get muddled up. Um, sometimes because you, you have shifts in responsibility, meddling in the 2016 American elections, for example. As far as I'm concerned, the hacking would have just been part of the normal intelligence gathering process. Of course, you would want to be hacking into potential you know, emails relating to the campaign for the candidate you believe was going to win. You know, they were sure Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. And so, you know, who knows? You might find some juicy scandals, some good compromat, or even just a clue as to who's going to be the next Secretary of State or whatever. This is, this is standard intelligence gathering. And then someone else, and I don't know who, I mean, I've got my suspicions, but someone else saw this raw intelligence coming in and thought, huh, we could do something with this. And I think at that point, again, because it would have been a big international issue, it must have gone to Putin's desk. So, that, you know, when we have a hack and leak, the hack was just normal business as usual. The leak was something that was strategic and Kremlin driven. And at other times, it's just a complete mess. Coronavirus, early years, oh, not years, just feels like that. Weeks and months of, 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 of the epidemic, but certainly weeks. Russia was trying this soft power, hearts and minds, hey, we're all in this together from Russia with love campaign, sending these medical missions to America, to Italy, to Serbia, hoping to accrue some gain. But because you can't really find it easy to signal to all these kind of autonomous characters quite what the new policy line is, because you can't have, you know, have a big advert on his vestia saying, oh, by the way, we're, we're, we're going to stop peddling lies to Westerners. At the same time, you had all these trolls pushing very, very toxic messages about coronavirus, you know, about how it was all a hoax or whatever else, which totally undermined whatever small benefit there might have been from the Hearts and Minds campaign. So often it is an absolute mess. So at the point where actually we're talking about how things are a mess and we don't really know exactly what's going on, I think that sounds like a good time for a break. We'll have a break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about your current book project and more about deplorables, I suppose. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash in Moscow Shadows. 
And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. And we're back. So, Anna, one of the reasons why you're in D.C., rather than the hubbub and hurly-burly of Moscow for this year is precisely to work on a book project. So first of all, do you want to give us a little sneak preview as what what we can expect? Well, it's it's going to be a very sneak preview as it's in some very early stages. The working title is How a Bunch of Guys Started a War. Uh, Which is a cool title. Well, thank you. Um, It's uh, the the bunch of guys that I'm talking about um, are... Some of the random fighters uh, that uh, went to Donbass in 2014. Then I kind of look at just the general reliance of the Kremlin on volunteers, freelancers, non-state actors, and the extent to which uh, the decisions of these people on the ground whether we're talking about some small-time volunteer to the likes of the former FSB colonel Igor Strelkov, the extent to which uh, these people made their own decisions about what they thought were Kremlin interests, what they thought were national uh, interests, went into Donbass and then ended up shaping Kremlin decision-making and Kremlin policy. And that's not to say by any means that um, the Kremlin never had a plan. That's to say that in the early stages, it was very indecisive about what it wanted to do, uh, what it wanted to achieve, and it was basically offloading, once again, its responsibility uh, onto people and players that it could then disavow if something went wrong, which is exactly what it did. But I think the wider, uh, the wider points I'll be making in this book is just how far the Kremlin uses this approach in its foreign policy in general. The paradox that we're looking at, what I've discovered over the last couple of years when I look at Russian actions abroad, is just how weak Russian foreign policy really is. And by weak, I mean, yeah, they want to play an assertive role. Uh, They want to become a global player. Uh, But their strategy, their planning is very thin. One former official described it to me as, well, the whole point of the Kremlin, when they they looked at establishing a presence abroad, was simply that, just, oh, let's open a, uh, let's let's have a branch of a company open an office, and there there we go, we have a presence abroad, without really thinking about what they want to achieve there. So what we have is, to a large extent, a foreign policy driven by uh, freelancers driven by businessmen, state actors, non-state actors, but without really a specific plan or agenda from the from the Kremlin. The Kremlin is waiting and seeing what can come from their actions that they can then use. Because this is an interesting point. You, you say state actors again. There is an assumption if it's a ministry or similar that it's part of you know the Kremlin's plan. Whereas in fact, in Russia, as we know. Often these are agencies that are busy seeing, well, what kind of business can they make for themselves? What kind of a name can they make themselves? Just is a, a deputy minister trying to please the minister? Is a department head trying to please a deputy minister? You know, a lot of it's that kind of stuff rather than that there's a chess player at the heart of it all. Well, one good example of that is Venezuela and, uh, you know, the, the extent to which this is the personal project of Igor Sechin and Rosneft. 
to what extent that is a personal ideological project of Igor Sechin or a personal monetary project. And, you know, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of questions there, but, uh, you know, it comes down to uh, the fact that, you know, when I was looking into this issue, I was almost shocked by the extent to which the foreign ministry was completely not involved in coordinating Russia's policies there. I mean, a diplomat almost uh, admitted as much to me. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, again, we, we, we have to take these things into account when we look at, you know, when we, when we say that Russia has an assertive, is reestablishing uh, its assertive role or, or uh, trying to uh, impose its will upon the world. Well, it, yeah, it would like to try, but frankly, it's more realistic about its limited capabilities, and that is why it's relying on this kind of model where it can disavow um, these various actors at any time. Or indeed activate them. I'm going back to your sort of the point where you start the book, which is obviously talking about what happened in the Donbass in 2014. Because you, you spent time on the ground then, didn't you, in your incarnation as a journalist? Yes, yes. I was. Um, I went to Crimea uh, in March 2014 to cover the uh, so-called referendum for uh, USA Today. And then in May I went to Donetsk, uh, to eastern Ukraine. And that's, that's where I got a chance to talk to a lot of these uh, rebel fighters and a lot of the people on the ground who are genuinely supportive of the project, uh, who, you know... We should say that the project in question is the Donbass project, not your book. <laughs> yes, of course. The, the, pro- the, the Kremlin project that never really materialized, or materialized in completely awful ways that I think they, they, they let everybody down, the, 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 the separatists and themselves. Um, and I think that's something that is often overlooked. I think this is fascinating. You, you mentioned Strelkov, you know, real name Girkin, this this rather bizarre figure who was the sort of defense minister, quote unquote, of the it was the Donbass People's Republic. The, the, the Donetsk People's Donetsk Republic. Donetsk People's Republic, yeah. Republic sorry. And I, 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 I know you've encountered him, but I find it fascinating the extent to which he represents these days a strand of Russian nationalism that is anti-Putin. And that precisely because it is anti-Putin and feels that Putin was able to let down the Russian people by not being much more muscular uh, in, in the Donbass, precisely because he's an autocrat. And therefore they're agitating for elections and independent courts and essentially rule of law and all these kind of very, very Western-style democratic things, but doing so from the perspective of unpleasant ultra-nationalists who just simply feel that Putin has let them all down. Well, this is, this is interesting because it, it uh, touches on the wider issue of Russian nationalism, which is an incredibly misunderstood concept simply because it is so multifaceted. There are so many different nationalist groups. Some of them are outright racist. Some of them are less racist. Some of them are merely about national interests. I mean, it's a whole plethora of just, you know, choose whatever whatever you like and call it nationalism. I mean, there were Russian nationalist groups fighting on both sides um, of the uh, of the war in Donbass, uh, on the Russians, on the pro-Russian side, and on the pro-Ukrainian side. So, you know, that just shows 
uh, how multifaceted it all is. And this is in no way to paint these guys as in any way nice or, or, or fuzzy, but yeah, there is a strand of Russian nationalism uh, that Strelkov got involved in, which in, did in fact promote things that we, we, we would consider democratic. In fact, their main argument against Putin was, you know, corruption, uh, lack of independent courts and all those types of things, even though Igor Strelkov calls himself a monarchist. So again, it's like, I think it's important to understand just how disparate this trend is precisely to understand that it has dangerous elements and it has less than dangerous elements. And then if, if we focus on elements that are not that dangerous, then we risk actually ignoring uh, things that, are, that, that do actually pose, pose more of a danger. But if we're speaking of dangers, I mean, how far has the situation in the Donbass, do you feel, how far has it changed? I'm just wondering about the implications of this very, very chaotic strategy for peace. Firstly, does it still apply? Or is now the situation that essentially the Kremlin has affirmed control over these two pseudo-states? And either way, does that actually mean that, that, that peace is, I wouldn't even say more or less likely, let's just settle for achievable? This is, this is interesting and it's actually a very good question and a difficult question because over the last six years, the Kremlin has, in one way or another, based its decisions on somebody else. In other words, first they were uh, unofficially uh, kind of waiting and seeing how successful the various um, separatist groups that they were funding and fueling uh, and you know, when, once that proved unsuccessful, they decided to bring in the military and basically take take control of the statelets that they uh, helped create. But taking control of the statelets, a process that uh, was a gradual process from 2015 um, up until now, also did not really, to my understanding, have any specific goal in mind. It's not that they wanted to annex them. It's not that they want to recognize their independence. They're kind of trying to freeze the status quo uh, without really uh, any, any, any game plan in mind. I mean, if this was meant to divide Ukraine, well, let, let's face it, to, to a large extent that has failed. Um, because I think that... Oh, you, no, I, I go further than that. You say to a large extent it's failed. I mean, I, I see Vladimir Putin as the father of the modern Ukrainian nation. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's actually created a real Ukrainian state where, frankly, one had never been before. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's a very fair point. I mean, I, I say largely because aside from those, um, those little statelets in the East... But as for the peace process, uh, the next thing that the Kremlin was doing was when Zelensky got elected, they were, first of all, they were shocked. They did not expect this. They were, at, uh, at one point, they were very cautiously optimistic. Uh, but at the same time, they didn't really want to trust him entirely. They weren't sure what he was going to do and how powerful he was going to be. So they were, their their stance, uh, and this is based on officials in Moscow that I that I talked to, was okay. Let's see to what extent Zelensky can actually deliver on his promises, meaning uh, uh, the Minsk package of measures, uh, and then and then we'll we'll see. So even then, the Kremlin wasn't really committing to any sort of uh, peace plan or option. They wanted to see to what extent Ukraine would act first. And uh, so, so given that basically their whole all of their ideas were vindicated that, oh, Ukraine doesn't want to act first, therefore, you know, there's nothing we can do. Of course, that's not true, but that's, the, that's, that's what they're telling themselves. You know, they're basically sitting back and 
bolstering these de facto states, freezing the conflict, process I call de factoization because it's not just uh, military, it's also economic. Uh, they're upholding an economic model that offsets the costs of um, upkeeping, of, of, of uh, maintaining these republics, because again, that's a cost that Russia also doesn't want to bear. And just, you know, seeing this, this make as, as little trouble as possible under the circumstances, but not really willing to solve the conflict. No, I mean, from their point of view, they, they don't really have an idea of what a good result that is achievable. In other words, that the Ukrainians also agree with. And at the same time, the cost of the conflict, yeah, it's irksome, but it's bearable. So again, when it comes down to it, lack of strategy. And when we reach the stage that we are irksome but bearable, it's probably a suitable point to end this particular podcast. Well, Anna, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for being, as I said, the very first guest on the In Moscow Shadow podcast, even if as a result probably the sound quality slightly suffered. Well, thank you, and uh, it was an honour to be the first guest. And look forward to future ones. Well, thank you, and thank you everyone who's been listening, as ever. I hope you found it useful and enjoyable. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ